Adrian Wilkinson, and you are listening to the Fandom Podcast. Welcome to the Fandom Podcast, episode 114. This is the show that brings together geeks and nerds from across the fandomverse to analyze the news and discuss your favorite TV, movies, comics, and books. Tonight's going to be a little bit different for a couple of reasons. Originally, we had scheduled Luke Hunsaker from the Nerd Dome podcast, but due to some technical difficulties, that episode has been sacrificed at the altar of the podcast gods. So I'm here recording, and I'm going to go over a little bit of the news that we talked about, and then rather than having a one-man show about clowns and the creepiness of clowns nowadays, after the news, I'm going to tack on the latest episode of The Legends of Fandom. That's the new podcast that I have that explores the legends that have inspired the modern-day fandoms. So stick around for that and tell me what you think and get me some feedback. I appreciate every bit of that. All right, let's jump into the news. The first news on the dock is that Star Trek Discovery has cast more people. Um, so yeah, I mean, they've cast more people. I think they're trolling me a little bit with what they're doing. This is completely CBS just going for a cash grab, making sure that they still are able to maintain the rights to this show. Why do they want the rights? Well, it's so that they can keep making money off of the Star Trek licensing deals. So they brought in five new crew members. One of them is going to be named Lieutenant Tyler. Lieutenant Tyler's real name is Shazad Latif. I have no idea who that is, but apparently they're known for their role as Dr. Henry Jekyll in Penny Dreadful. Rekha Rekha Sharma is going to be Commander Landry, and she's from Battlestar Galactica and The 100. They've also cast Kenneth Mitchell, who will star as Cole who's the Klingon commander. He is known from Jericho, and I guess most recently probably Frequency. Claire McConnell is going to star as Danas, who is a leader in the Klingon Empire. Damon Runyon is going to star as Ujili, another leader in the Klingon Empire. And uh, let's see, Damon Runyon has shown up in Suits, in Supernatural, and Gangland Undercover. So, you know, I guess... All of these people seem to have a little bit of experience behind the camera. So it sounds like the Klingons are going to be a major part of the show. Uh, I'm going to guess, kind of like the Andorians were in Star Trek Enterprise, where you had Shran, the Andorian, you know, the blue guys with the antenna. So it's going to be really interesting to see if this show ever comes out. The next bit of news is that Stan Lee has been confirmed as not just a cameo, but an actual character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, okay, so not Stan Lee himself. And uh, I doubt this is ever this was ever actually like, yeah, this is this is what we're doing. As Jeff put it, it was probably something that Kevin Feige was asking. He was like, yeah, sure, why not? That sounds like a like a good idea. Stanley has been confirmed as Kevin Feige as Uatu, who is a Watcher. The Watchers are a race of beings, pretty much omniscient, super powerful beings that are always around, and well, they watch. They have a non-interference pack where they observe important parts in different worlds' history. So, you know, when Uatu shows up, there's always something about to go down, and Stan Lee always makes a cameo in the movie where there's always something important that's going to happen. In the comic books, Uatu is actually a pretty terrible Watcher because he gets involved in a lot of things. But the power set on the Watchers and on Uatu, you know, it makes a lot of sense to give the creator of a lot of these properties that kind of power in the universe. In more Marvel news, the movie Logan is going to be re-released into theaters for one day in a black and white format. Now, 
before you start going, well, how difficult could that be? I can, I can take it and I can just turn the color down on my TV and not have to worry about, you know, going to pay this. First off, it's another chance to go see Logan in the movie theater, which you may or may not want to see. It is not. It's definitely not a happy-go-lucky, happy-feel-good movie. It's not one that you leave all pumped up and hyper and excited. It's it's a sombering one. It's kind of a sad one. Uh, so maybe you don't want it again in the future. But it's for those artistic types, you know, they're really niching down on this. They've got the comic book fans and people who are fans of old black and white movies. There's a lot of art to it because depending on the levels of blues and reds and and stuff like that, it can really change the imagery and the color. And so I'm sure they spent a lot of time getting the getting it all set up just right. Uh, but yeah, that will be May 16th for one day. So if, if that's something that you're into, check your local theaters to see what times they have available for that. Okay, there's lots of there's lots of Marvel news. There is lots of Marvel news today. So there's been some back and forth over the Avengers Infinity War series that is whether it's going to be one movie, one really long movie, or split it up into two, part one and part two, or, you know, they've decided they're going to name the first movie Infinity War, and the next movie was unknown. The, the title and the subject matter of it was kind of unknown until Zoe Saldana was in a interview for Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which will be our topic next week. She sat down and she was asked about whether they have done their filming for Infinity Wars, and uh, she said, we're in the middle of it. I think Guardians just shot their part when it comes to Infinity Wars, the first part. And we'll all have to go back for Gauntlet later this year. So right there, Zoe Zaldana uh, kind of let something slip. Now, she's the second Guardians person to let something slip. First, you had James Gunn saying, yeah, heck yeah, I'm going to do Guard- er, Guardians 3. And now you've got Zoe Saldana saying that the title of the next Avengers movie is going to be Infinity Gauntlet. Now, granted, that's not the title, but it might as well be the title. Uh, we speculated that the first the first movie was going to be about Thanos attempting to get the gauntlet, and the second movie is going to be Thanos using the gauntlet. So, I, there's a, there's a chance that just knowing this title and the subject is going to be a little spoilery, because, well, if you think about it, that means that you know that the Avengers lose at the end of the third one. And you know that Vision is going to have to fall because if Thanos is able to get all of the Infinity Stones, that means that Vision is not going to have the stone that gives him his sentience and his power and his life. There is still a chance, you know, because like like with any other rumor, even though this one came from somebody who's really close, there's a chance that, that uh, Zoe Saldana mixed up her words and said the wrong things. But I would highly doubt it. I don't think it's going to be called uh, Infinity Gauntlet, but I think... That's what they're working with right there. So keep your eye out. See what, see what they announce there. I'm excited to see Guardians of the Galaxy upcoming. That will be that will be a fun one to discuss. From what I'm hearing, it's more of what we loved from Guardians of the Galaxy. Our next news is not Marvel, but it is still a Disney company. Lucasfilm has announced the next Episode 9 and Indiana Jones movie release dates. Okay, so Star Wars Episode Nine is now set to release on May 24th, 2019. So right there we are going to be seeing Star Wars Episode Nine just six months after the anthology film comes out. It'll be re- really interesting to see what happens because we're only going to go six months between it because they're moving the release date from December, 
which, you know, what else is going on in December? There's, I mean, that's the whole reason Jeff would leave the house in December was to go see Star Wars over and over. I don't know if that was one that he saw over and over again, but you know, that's, that's kind of Jeff's MO, but we, you know, we're going to get the fifth chapter of Indiana Jones in July of 2020. You know, Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford are going to return I would be interested to see how they do that because at that point, Indiana Jones is getting, getting a little old there, getting a little long in the tooth. We'll see how, we'll see how he can do, how he can do another movie. Maybe, maybe since he's getting old, he's going to think to himself, you know, you know what else we're old? Dinosaurs. And at that point, we can get a crossover between Indiana Jones and Jurassic World. I think Jurassic World 2 is trying for a Thor Ragnarok crossover because they have announced that Jeff Goldblum will be joining the cast of Jurassic World 2. Uh, you know, he, he made little cameos in Jurassic World. and You know, he was apparently the author of a book and his image was on the, on the jacket. You see it in the train. You also see it in the control room. So like I mentioned, we had Luke from the Nerd Dome podcast uh, on to talk about clowns this week. And we just, you know, I... And to be honest, I feel a little bit bad for you guys to have to listen to me recap this news when there was actually quite a bit of quite a bit of good discussion around it. Uh, Luke is actually one of the people in charge of and running the Jurassic Files, which you can get to at facebook.com slash Jurassic Files. But what they're doing is they are trying to raise money and awareness for for some tools for some paleontologists who are working on some pretty cool projects, but they just aren't getting funding anymore. Because, you know, science and the administration and all that fun stuff. Um, but no, they, so they're going to have some, they've got some cool facts up there. They've got some cool pictures. They will also be at the Nerd Store for a time period on Saturday, May 6th, which also happens to be free comic book day. Uh, so go check that out. Go support them. Help them to keep a help them to keep a good cause alive and to further the research of dinosaurs. Uh, and if you're in the greater Salt Lake area, head over to the nerd store on May 6th to uh, partake in free comic book day. I mean, it's free comics. It's every cheap nerds dream, right? So you get to go there, you get free comics. They're going to have Chad Harden, who is the uh, artist on probably best known for Harley Quinn. They're also going to have the creative team on and the creators of the Salt City Strangers. They're going to have Jurassic Files there. And they've got a big drawing where they've got thousands of dollars in prizes to give away. A couple years ago, I decided I was going to get back into comic book collecting. And, I, you know, I, at first I went to the comic book store that I went to as a kid. And it was like, okay, this is cool. And uh, after a little bit of time there, it's like, well, this, they're, they're not, it's not quite the same as when I was a kid. I mean, nostalgia, it always lets you down, right? Uh, then I decided on free comic book day of that year, which free comic book day is always the first Saturday in May. So in free com- on free comic book day, I decided I'm going to go check out the other comic book stores in the Valley because if there is a day that you are going to get the worst service out of anybody, it's going to be during free comic book day when everything is hectic and they've got lines and lines of people and all sorts of crazy things. And, I, and so I, I went to five or six comic book stores in the Valley just to check it out and see how their employees treated me. You know, and so I checked out five or six stores across the Valley on that day, walked into the nerd store and, uh, Edgar, he's, he's my comic book guy. I walked back there and he 
I, I didn't, I didn't really know him before that day. I'd seen him around other geeky places in Utah, but I walk in and he greeted me and he, you know, started talking to me like we had been friends for a hundred years and it was, you know, it was awesome. He, this was towards the end of the day when everything had been crazy and ransacked and he was still upbeat and happy. Uh, so I decided at that point, you know, the nerd store is the store that I'm going to, that I'm going to put my hold in, that I'm going to, that I'm going to, uh, the store that I'm going to frequent. And just as I got to know everyone else who worked there as well, they're, they're an awesome group of people. So free comic book day, May 6th, go check out the nerd store. If you're listening to this after May 6th, still go check out the nerd store. Uh, I'll give you a little hint right here. The nerd store is the sponsor of our pop quiz where we give a Funko pop away based on a fandom. The next upcoming pop quiz is going to be on the Arrowverse. It's going to be a pop. It's going to be a Funko Pop from the Arrowverse. So go ahead and make sure that you like our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/FandomPodcast, so that you see the post where we announce that there's going to be a pop quiz. Because usually, for about a week before the pop quiz, I put out a post saying, "Hey, there's a pop quiz coming. Tell us why you like this universe or this show or a character in this." And you comment, and by commenting on it, you enter to win this Funko Pop. I just, you know, free of charge, just send it out to you. We do a random drawing, and big shout out to the Nerd Store for all of the, all of the help they've they've done to, to build the geek and nerd community here in Utah. All right, I think that is the news. If you have any news that you would like us to cover for next week, if you have discussion topics that you would like to hear a couple nerds debate about and talk about, if you have just some feedback on something I said today or something we've said in the past said that go ahead and head over to fandompodcast.com slash contact, fill out the form there tell us who you are or, you know, use a pseudonym if you want, but tell, you know, give us a name. doesn't even have to be your name, but give us a name and you, the message that you want to send to us that shoots us an email. And we would love to give you a shout out here on the air. So head over to fandompodcast.com slash contact uh, make sure that you like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash fandom podcast. And then make sure that you subscribe to this feed so that you're always in the know about things like the pop quiz and other things that are going on. With that, I'm going to throw it over to the Legends of Fandom. And this episode is on Peter Pan and his actual origins compared to the Disney movie. If you remember around Christmas time, I put out one about Maui from Moana. You guys gave me some great feedback. I took that feedback. I have I am in the process of rewriting that episode right now. And that will be the next one to drop on Legends of Fandom. So make sure, you know, head over to legendsoffandom.com slash subscribe. Subscribe to that. Share your feedback with me. Let me know what you think I could be doing better. This is a little bit of an experiment for me. Uh, if you like the experiment, make sure to head over to legendsoffandom.com slash support. So that you can see the different ways that you can help support the creation of that podcast. And until next time, may the fandom be with you. On January 3, 1866, 13-year-old David Barry went out to ice skate with his younger brother Jamie and a group of friends. Roughhousing as boys do, David was knocked down, but unlike the many times before, David did not get up. Being his mother's favorite, David's death affected her deeply. Jamie tried to fill the hole in his mother's heart by worshipping his brother's memory, and even one time went as far as to dress up in David's clothes. When his mother called out to him, Is that you?
he knew she thought he was David. And responded, No, it's not him. It's just me. No matter how much he tried, he would never be able to replace the boy that would never grow up. In 1953, Disney released their adaptation of the story of Peter Pan, the fun-loving boy that never grows up, lives in a magical world called Neverland, and whisks generations of the Darling family away to have wonderful adventures. But in 1903, James Matthew Barry, better known as J.M. Barry, wrote the original play that introduced Peter Pan to the world. No matter how famous J.M. would become, his mother would always call him by his childhood name of Jamie. Before we get any further, I have to admit I have never actually read Peter Pan. I actually listened to it. Because the original novel is in the public domain, there are many versions, both printed and audio. What I listened to was an audiobook narrated by Jim Dale, who is a wonderful actor and narrator. Head over to legendsoffandom.com slash peterpan to read the show notes and find the links to this version in Audible. If you are an Audible member, it is well worth your monthly credit. If you aren't a member, click on the Audible link or head over to legendsoffandom.com slash audible to get two free audiobooks. I would definitely choose Peter Pan, but there are about 200,000 other books to choose from. Once again, that's legendsoffandom.com slash peterpan. Over the years, there has been a lot of speculation on how much of Peter Pan was influenced by David Barry's tragic death. I'm going to let you decide for yourself because, well, I'm not sure where I fall on that debate myself. What I do know is that growing up and what it means to grow up is a central theme in this story. Each of the characters in Peter Pan seem to be at a different stage of both physical and emotional development, and I can't imagine that's a coincidence. From Michael is the youngest, John is the boy that knows everything, to Wendy is the nurturing, caring teenager. The darlings represent your stereotypical normal levels of development. But on the other side of the coin, we have Peter Pan and the Lost Boys that seem to have a case of arrested development in every sense of the word. Many times, their lack of empathy or maturity creates situations in the book that have major ramifications in the story. And it seems that on top of the obvious theme of growing up, that this book deals with another more subtle theme, that being childlike is not the same as being childish. It seems to me that the largest difference between these two qualities is the level of innocence versus the level of immaturity, and maybe even the level of faith that is displayed. The story starts with an example of an adult acting childish. Mr. Darling, angry that Michael will not take his medicine, says that he always took his medicine as a child, and that as an adult, his medicine is even worse. I imagine the conversation went something like this. It's just a shame that I misplaced it somewhere. And can't take it to prove it. Oh, oh, what, what, what's that, Wendy? You know where it is? No, no, it's okay, really. Really, you don't have to go. Thank you, Wendy, for finding it in a very obscure place that I definitely didn't hide it in. And if that weren't bad enough, he puts it in Nana's dish when nobody's looking. Or so he thinks. As a matter of fact, everybody seems to have more sympathy for Nana than they do for Mr. Darling. And in an act of childish anger, Mr. Darling takes Nana and ties her up outside. If Mr. Darling hadn't have committed that childish act right there, this story would have been over before it even started. But he was childish, and so the story can continue. With Nana tied up in the yard, Mr. and Mrs. Darling put the children to bed and leave to go to a party. While being put to bed, the children can hear Nana barking in the yard, 
and Wendy tells her mother that Nana can sense danger. In a very adult manner, Mr. and Mrs. Darling tell Wendy not to worry. It seems that as if on a dime, Mr. Darling went from being childish to being blinded by adulthood. And even though the dog, the children, and as you find out even later in the story, the stars even know that something is up. The crushing realism of adulthood prevents the Darlings from seeing it. Shortly after the Darlings leave for their party, the stars, yes, the stars, let Peter Pan and Tinkerbell know that the coast is clear. Now, most of us know Peter Pan and Tinkerbell from Disney's portrayals of them. However, the characters that are introduced at this point are slightly different than what you may know. While the story stays fairly true to what we remember from Disney's retelling of this story, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell do have some very different personality traits. Peter comes crashing into the nursery looking for his shadow, which he has lost on a previous night while listening to stories. While looking for his shadow, he is extremely careless, and he doesn't pay attention to Tinkerbell, and he doesn't pay attention to how much noise he is making, and when he finally finds his shadow and tries to put it back on, he is unable to and cries out in frustration, which wakes Wendy up. Wendy wakes up, and when she figures out what is going on, she decides that she is going to sew on his shadow. As soon as she does this, Peter, very pleased with himself, takes all of the credit, acting very arrogantly. This offends Wendy a little bit. After all, she was the one who put the shadow back on him. With a little bit of flattery, Peter is able to win Wendy back over, and Wendy offers Peter a kiss. Now, Peter, not knowing what a kiss was, put his hand out, and not to offend him and hurt his feelings, Wendy gave him a thimble and made him believe that thimbles and buttons were kisses. So, when he offered to give her a kiss, he gave her an acorn button, which she put on a chain around her neck. Yes, an acorn button, not a thimble. If you remember right, I said that Tinkerbell came in with Peter Pan. Where is she at at this point? Well, he has been so selfish, so focused on his own desires, that he has accidentally closed Tinkerbell up into a drawer. Now, Tinkerbell also is described very differently than in the Disney movie. Tinkerbell very often is given childish traits of anger and jealousy. But there's a reason for this. And as Barry put it, fairies have to be one thing or another. Because being so small, they unfortunately have room for one feeling only at a time. I imagine that this is similar to what it's like being a toddler, actually. Which is another creature that's so small that they seem to only have one feeling at a time. If you have ever been left in charge of a toddler, whether it's your own child or someone else's, you know the confusion of dealing with the seemingly switched emotions. My own children have all gone through a phase where they will be crying at one moment, and then all of a sudden they are laughing, and then they act as if nothing had happened. They only have one thing, one emotion going through themselves at a time. And so even though Tinkerbell is a fully adult fairy, J.M. Barry uses her to explore what it is like being a child, experiencing only one emotion at a time. After Wendy finds out that Peter has been listening to her stories that she has been telling her brothers and asks her to come back to Neverland, Wendy agrees as long as she can bring her brothers. This part of the book very much reminded me of the Disney movie. And as a matter of fact, there were times where the Disney music popped into my head as I was listening to this. And this is where I believe that you begin to see the other side of childlikeness instead of just childishness because michael john and wendy 
are all able to fly because of their childlike innocence. Actually, later in the book, when Jane asks Wendy why she can no longer fly, Wendy explains that only children can fly, only the gay and innocent and heartless. Which, right there, is that balance between childishness and child-likeness. So you've got your gay and innocent portion, which is definitely on the childlike side. But then the heartless, which is on the childishness. Now this is, heartlessness does not mean like ruthless or bitter. It just means that you aren't thinking about other people. Children have a very hard time thinking about others. It is not something that naturally comes to human beings. It is a learned behavior to have that compassion for others. And so this difference in this balance is something that is that is played on throughout the entire book, even through flying, maybe even especially through flying. Because one major difference between the Disney movie and this story is that Nana, with all the commotion with Peter Pan upstairs, begins barking so loud, and when nobody responds, she finally breaks free of her tether and runs to the party where the darlings are at to warn them of the danger. The darlings seeing Nana there know that something is wrong, they rush back, but by the time that they reach the bedroom or the nursery, it is empty. As a parent myself, that part of the story is not something that I think exists in the Disney version of this retelling, because the Disney version is all about from the child's view, because the children are not thinking, what are my parents going to think when they come home and we are just mysteriously gone? It brings that heartlessness into it. It brings that selfishness and childishness into it. And even though the darlings made some mistakes, maybe, in how they behaved, they were still their parents. They still loved them, and they still cared about them. And the heartache that they felt at that point must have just been terrible. One thing that I always thought when I was younger with this story was that the parents had left them with Nana as the caretaker and Nana being tied up outside. That was not the case. Yes, this was back in the 1900s. I, I'm, I'm sure times were different, and maybe parents would have done that. However... The Darlings did have a maid, Liza, who was downstairs during this entire thing as well. How she didn't know and why she didn't respond to Nana's barking, I don't know. But the Darlings didn't leave their children unattended. There was there was somebody in the house and there was a dog tied up in the front yard. So theoretically, nobody should have been able to get into there. At least nobody who couldn't fly. So now we've begun our journey to Neverland. You know, first start of the right and straight on till morning. Except it wasn't straight on till morning. It was actually several days of flying. Throughout this time, we get some more of Peter's showing off and Tinkerbell begins to grow more and more agitated with Wendy. Peter is able to feed the three of them by stealing food from birds' mouths. Now, yeah, I, I imagine that some birds are able to steal food and trash and whatnot from humans. However, it's still, like I said, it was still trash. At the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you know the saying, the early bird gets the worm? Yeah, that doesn't sound like great food to me, but that's what they ate on their way to Neverland. And because they were flying for so long, they would actually start drifting off and nodding off to sleep. When they would fall asleep, they would start plummeting to the ground, and Peter, of course, would save them. However, I don't think he actually saved them because he wanted to save them. He would wait till the very last second, swoop down and save them, more so that he could show off. Which is very different than the Peter Pan that most of us know and most of us love. Now that we are on our way to Neverland, 
I think it's a good time to talk about the things that have already been said about Neverland. Neverland itself is an example of a place that can only exist in the mind of a child. J.M. Barry explained that Neverland is different for each child. John's Neverland had a lagoon with flamingos flying over it, but Michael's version had flamingos with lagoons flying over it. The one similarity between all of the versions of Neverland, though, was that an adventure was never far away. And that right there is possibly the most childlike attitude towards the world that anyone can adopt. When you are young, when you are innocent, the world is full of adventures. But it seems as people grow older and begin to become more quote-unquote mature, the world becomes a bit more mundane and more of a drudgery. Once they arrive to Neverland, they find that the sun is setting and that it's beginning to get dark. The children recognize the landscapes because, well, they're familiar. I don't know how the flamingos and the lagoons were flying, but they were familiar to the children. Something that the book points out about Neverland is that as the sun sets, it actually begins to get a little frightening and dangerous. Kind of like it does at home. When you're younger and the sun starts getting darker, you want to run inside and you want to go home and you want to sleep. Well, some children want to sleep. Mine, not always so often. This is the point where Peter tells the children about Captain Hook and his vicious pirate crew and how he chopped off his hand once in battle. Because all of the children see something that is familiar to them, I'm guessing that Neverland is kind of a mix of all of the children's imaginations and maybe even children throughout the world. So Neverland may be a place that is sprawling because it literally is as abundant as you can imagine. Although, children can also imagine some pretty dangerous things. So the story in Neverland is pretty much close to what you remember from the Disney film or maybe the play adaptation that you've seen. In Neverland, the story actually starts to get a little dark. When talking about where the lost boys come from, Barry wrote, The boys on the island vary, of course, in numbers, according as they get killed, and so on. Yes, the lost boys get killed. If you pay attention to the pirate fight scenes, there are actually several deaths that are described. But that kind of goes along with the theme, doesn't it? it? It's all a game to Peter. And as long as it's a game, it doesn't really matter if anybody else gets hurt. Barry goes on to say, And when they seem to be growing up, which is against the rules, Peter thins them out. There are a couple different interpretations that you can take, but most likely, based off the time period that this was written in, and the practices back then, it would be as if a farmer was thinning out a herd of cows, or thinning out their chickens, which means killing them. It's not some, you know, it's, it's not a vicious act. It's not a malicious act. It's just something that you have to do every once in a while. So I imagine that if you're a lost boy, as you are growing up, you have two options. Your first option is to sit there and be thinned out. And your second option is to run off and go join the pirates. So Peter Pan right here definitely is displaying childishness. It doesn't really matter to him because as the lost boys move on or are thinned out there are always replacements the way that peter gets his replacements are he keeps an eye on kensington gardens which is where he was lost as a baby and keeps an eye for babies that fall out of their prams which were those old style strollers if the baby's not claimed for seven days then peter claims him and and takes him to neverland to share in the adventures this can actually be taken a couple different ways. One of the ways is that Peter is rescuing these boys. 
that Peter is taking these boys who are neglected. However, a baby in one of the busiest places in London, I can't imagine, wouldn't go unnoticed for seven days. So either the seven days is an exaggeration, and Peter's just kidnapping these children, or maybe it's symbolic of David Barry when he fell on the ice. And Neverland is a place where these children are able to experience a childhood even though they have passed from the mortal existence. This second theory would mean that Peter Pan is not killing the Lost Boys to thin them out. So either way, J.M. Barry's Neverland seems very much darker than Disney's adaptation of it. So the last difference that I want to talk about is the very ending. In the ending of the novel, Wendy, Michael, and John take the Lost Boys home with them, and the Darlings adopt them. This is very different from Disney's version of Peter Pan. Part of the cynic in me wants to say that Disney did not take the Lost Boys back to London with the Darlings in order for them to be able to do sequels. Because creating brand new Lost Boys for Peter Pan to have adventures with... I imagine would be harder on the animators than using the existing character design and maybe even some of the cells from the current movie. But in the novel, the more that I think about it, the more that I wonder if this was written as nearly a wish-fulfillment fantasy for J.M. Barry. That if David Barry died as a 13-year-old boy, that he had a chance to go be in Neverland and finish out his childhood. And if he were lucky enough that Wendy would be able to visit him and bring him back, bring him back from the dead, bring him back to life so that he could continue to have his life. I'm not saying that that's what J.M. Barry's motivations were. There are a lot of people who have spent a lot of time looking into it, but it seems interesting to me that somebody who missed his brother that much and who grew up most of his life with his mother missing her son that he wouldn't want to fulfill that wish, even just in fantasy. So how did Disney do? Well, for the adaptation, I would have to give them three acorn buttons out of seven. There was quite a lot of the spirit of the book that was changed for the movie to make it a more whimsical, lighthearted, less heavy story. But the movie itself, how could you not give it anything but six thimbles out of seven? I mean, with the minor exceptions of some period-acceptable racism, the movie is everything that a child would want it to be, and and invokes the kind of whimsy that Barry himself was known for hoping to invoke. What do you think? What kind of ratings would you give this? Now, you can tell based off of my ratings that I do not hold hard and fast to a rating standard, so what I would love for you to do is head over to legendsoffandom.com slash peterpan and leave a comment with your rating come up with some Peter Pan related rating mechanism. I almost used stars because of first start of the right and straight on till morning, but that just seemed to be a little bit too on the nose. If you enjoyed this look into the origins of Peter Pan, head over to legendsoffandom.com slash support for ways to help support the show. There are multiple ways to help and not all of them cost money. This has been a fandom podcast production.